Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 14. The question is, what's it, is there a meaning in it for us? What I'm proposing, I have tried to do and, and want to do here is take Dante at his word and assume that, uh, that, that what he's saying is, applies to us. Um, and the implication here is that it is now beyond the capacity of this soul to redeem itself. And so the meditation that occurred to me on this is the following. People from Moses to Frederick Nietzsche, that's enough of a span, isn't it? Moses to Frederick Nietzsche, have um, observed that we are fundamentally covenant people that what distinguishes us from other species is that we uh, that we enter into covenants with one another that we are we are people who know how to make and keep promises and that that is what distinguishes us now if we take that as a measure of our humanity, then what happens, these are, be, these are traitors, you see, in this circle of hell, what happens when we begin to compromise and exploit and, and uh, cripple our capacity to make and keep promises? We lose our humanity. So what, I, what was coming to me as I reflected on this is that when we jeopardize or, or cripple or finally kill our capacity to, to make and keep promises, we destroy the spirit, the human spirit, the special quality that is the human spirit. And repentance presupposes that we are at least in some vestigial way in touch with some commitment. Otherwise, we can't feel repentance. Repentance is how, what I feel when I feel like I have not lived up to something I feel obliged to live up to. I have not, I have, I have uh, breached some proper order of things. And if I have so compromised my sense of what that covenant is, so that I have no, I have no access to that a feeling of repentance, then I can't. Then there's, then there's no. No hope of redemption. Now, this may seem a little facile, but I, th I think there is a point here about, about uh, sort of day in and day out uh, compromising of this sense of, uh, of covenant and of responsibility and of commitment until we finally destroy our capacity to make and keep promises. Canto 34 is um, uh, not only the clincher, in a way, uh, but it is, in a way, a miniature of the Inferno. This is the, pl uh, the Inferno has been a long and elaborate and, and nuanced and detailed uh, encounter between the pilgrim Dante and uh, human corruption, 
our sinfulness. And now he is going to have an encounter with the embodiment of transcendental evil. So, in a sense, it's all summed up here. He is also, the Divine Comedy is also an elaborate story about conversion. Not a conversion uh, of somebody from, um, uh, from one uh, religious franchise to another, but the conversion, uh, the fundamental turning around of the human heart. And so the whole Divine Comedy is a story of conversion. But it is in Canto 34 of the Inferno that the most literal uh, conversion takes place. Literal in the sense that uh, Dante literally turns upside down so that the, he, his, his world is reordered top to bottom in Canto 34 of the Inferno. The Divine Comedy is a story of conversion, but this is a literal turning around. That's what conversion means, is to turn around, fundamental turnaround. And Dante does it right after he has an encounter with the personification of transcendental evil. Now, the question is, is there something generic in that for us? Was his encounter with Satan uh, the clincher in his conversion process in some way? He still has, he has to turn around and work it out throughout purgatory and paradise. Uh, but was it uh, an essential part of this conversion? Uh, Soren Kierkegaard says that it is only through the consciousness of sin that we can ever hope to enter into the Christian mysteries. And he says any attempt to enter into those mysteries by any other door uh, will fail. It's only through a consciousness of sin. Well, Dante had, and, and now we're not talking about a, a confronting this or that uh, human uh, perversion or foible or whatever. We're talking about impersonal, archetypal, transcendental evil. And if, if an encounter with that kind of evil is a preliminary, uh, is a prerequisite for a fundamental conversion, or to the extent that it might be a, a, a prerequisite for a fundamental conversion, then Dante has an enormous advantage over us because he believed in Satan and most of us don't. He believed that there was a force in the world, in the cosmos, independent of the human psyche, uh, that was determined uh, to destroy uh, the spirit wherever it found it. Now, we don't generally believe that. Uh, we, have, we think of it in terms of psychology or whatever. Uh, but... Dante's belief system was enormously helpful, I think, in the fact that he could imagine encountering this dark will that was out to destroy the world and the spirit in the world. What he discovered about this 
Satan when he saw him. I say this may have led. This may have been the last thing that led to his conversion. Perhaps the reason it led to his conversion is because he discovers a very strange thing when he meets Satan. Let me just make. I know I'm doing a lot of an aside, but a little aside. The uh, the, the great uh, uh, Lutheran scholar, uh, historian of the Christian movement, a man named Jaroslav Pelikan at Yale University. Uh, Pelican's written this the monumental tome on the history of Christian movement. And I remember a uh, interview with him a number of years ago in the New Yorker, I think it was. And the uh, interviewer was saying to him, uh, "Well, Dr. Pelican, you're a, you know, you're a, you're a top scholar and a, a man of great insight and understanding and historical perspective and this and that and so on. Uh, and you've studied the." Christian movement. Uh, how do you? How does it finally come? What's it finally come down to, for you? And these are two very bright modern intellectuals facing each other. And Pelican said, <clears throat> "What's at the heart of the message of Jesus is at the heart of the universe. Not a man timid to, to uh, preserve his intellectual credentials. There, being interviewed by the New Yorker, I'd say." But in any case, the point is, what's at, heart, what's at the heart of the message of Jesus is at the heart of the universe? Well, there's something like that implicit in what happens here for Dante, I think. Namely, what he finds out is that, uh, it, perhaps I could put it this way, the doctrines of the church are simply the formulations of the mysteries. They are the way in which the mysteries have come to be formulated. And what Dante learns is that those mysteries are the essential ordering principles of the universe. Uh, we've talked about it here before in saying that this is a this is a trinitarian universe. This is a dying and a rising universe. This is a uh, this is an incarnating universe. It's seeing those doctrines as being the, the essential ordering principles of the cosmos. And Blake, Blake said nothing, uh, anything able to be believed is an image of truth. And the, one of the reasons that Satan is able to be believed is because he is, he is simply the parody of all those doctrines. And this is what Dante sees. When he sees Satan, he, he, see, he, 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 he does a very subtle job of it, so we don't maybe notice it right off the bat. But Satan is an elaborate parody of the great doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the, of, uh, the incarnation and the crucifixion uh, and so on. We'll touch on those. But if we, if we say, how is it that this encounter with uh, ultimate evil may have produced in Dante the last straw that, that led to his literal conversion? It may be because he found out that this... this creature at the furthest removed from the Godhead still was obliged to obey those principles at least to the point of, uh, uh, of torturously mimicking them so that they are still the governing principles. Well, Canto 34 starts with the Latin phrase which I want to postpone exploring for a minute and come back to it later, but uh, it is vexilla regis poerunt inferni 
which is the first line with the addition of the word inferni, of a Latin hymn. Uh, so with the insertion of the word inferni uh, uh, in it, it is the banners or the standards of the king of hell uh, draw near. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but that's a, it's a solemn processional introduction to, the, to this very grave canto. And right away we get, I think, a, a wonderfully helpful insight of Dante's. He says, just as when night falls on our hemisphere or when a heavy fog is blowing thick, a windmill seems to wheel when seen far off. So then I seem to see that sort of structure. So it looked to him as he looks through this fog that there is a windmill up ahead. Now we find out later that this is that this is Satan and his six wings batting like this. Uh, but the windmill is a very helpful image. I'll go ahead and read. A windmill, uh, okay, a windmill seems to wheel when seen far off, so then I seem to see that sort of structure. And next, because the wind was strong, I shrank behind my guide. There was no other shelter. Okay, just take the windmill for a second. This, I think, can be seen as a parody of the Holy Spirit. Wind, the word, the Greek word pneuma, means breath and means spirit. The Hebrew word ruach, same connotation. It is the spirit and the breath. And now what Dante is feeling is the blast from this windmill. But right away, you see the parody quality of it. The first of all, a windmill in Dante's time would have had four, would have had a quaternity image. So it is not only the windmill, but it's the cross. It's the cross spinning. But the appropriate image of the windmill is that the windmill is that which receives the wind, and translates it into energy. The windmill is a beautiful, incarnational symbol for the working of the spirit. The spirit blows, and the windmill receives that spirit, allows it to pass through, and in receiving it properly, translates it or converts it into energy. That's a beautiful image. That's the appropriate incarnational and spirit-filled idea. But notice this windmill purports to be the source of wind. That is the great outrage. And that's the first definition of Satan we have in Canto 34. Posing as a windmill, but presuming to be the source of wind. So this is wind that is being blown out. We're just talking about a simile because when Dante gets there, or a mistaken view, when Dante gets there, he finds out it's the wings. But he inserts this, I think, to make a point. 
uh, and the symbolic point is that the satanic is that which presumes to be the source of wind, and therefore the wind that that emanates from that source freezes the water of life. We find out later in the canto that it is that wind that is freezing the lake of Cassitis. And I think probably the reason it's freezing it is because it is, it is the, it is, emanates from that arrogance, trying to be the source of wind. And so this, the windmill ought to be the appropriate response. There's that prayer, you know, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. It's like the hearts of your faithful are like sails. You know, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. Very incarnational dimension to that. But here Satan is presuming. Well, the next thing Dante says is that the wind was so strong, I shrank behind my God, there was no other shelter. And I want to pause and dilate on this just a little bit because... Uh, at this point, Virgil, uh, we've you know we have variously uh, perceived Virgil as we've gone through. Typically, he's thought of as the personification of reason or virtue, something like that. Here, I think the best way to see Virgil is as a personification of the uh, of the whole cultural heritage, because. What happens is when Dante is exposed to that blast of cold and freezing air coming off evil itself, not, not coming off uh, this or that uh, human funny business, but coming off evil itself, it's as though he realize, he says there was no other shelter. It's as though he realizes that, the, if I may expand on it a little bit, it's as though he realizes how tenuous our civilizing or civilization is and how dependent it is upon the cultural heritage. And when face to face with that wind, one, one can um, you know, be very cavalier about the cultural heritage uh, as long as it's holding in place and as long as it's not uh, as long as one's not having an encounter with truly terrible evil. But when the cultural heritage begins to uh, fall slack and some honest-to-goodness evil comes along, then one suddenly is sobered and realizes, I think, how, how much in need of that we all are. The word here for shelter is is the word grotto, which is not only uh, a cave or a little nook and cranny, but also a, a slightly uh, religious implication on that word. He come. He, there was no other shelter save for Virgil, who I think here's the personification of the cultural heritage. Well, I want to read a couple of things, and uh, because we we have this problem, those of us in this room today have this problem. Uh, as I said before, we're not, whatever we think of when we hear the word Satan, we don't think of what Dante thought of, uh, if we think of anything at all. Uh, and so in order to catch up with him, we're going to have to try to translate this into some language that can leave us as horrified as he was. 
If we're not as horrified as he was, we, we didn't look at what he looked at. Uh, so the whole purpose, uh, I hate to tell you this middle of the morning, the whole purpose of this morning is to get us as horrified as he was. Well, I want to, re I want to read to you something that uh, T.S. Eliot said in, the, in about 1930. Uh, it's a talk he gave, which later became a, uh, an essay. He says, this is not a religious talk, and I am not setting out to convert anybody. I am simply stating a fact. An individual European may not believe that the Christian faith is true. And yet what he says and makes and does will all spring out of his heritage of Christian culture and depend upon that culture for its meaning. Only a Christian culture could have produced a Voltaire or a Nietzsche. I do not believe that the culture of Europe could survive the complete disappearance of the Christian faith, and I am convinced of that, not merely because I am a Christian myself, but as a student of social biology. If Christianity goes, the whole of our culture goes. Then you must start painfully again, and you cannot put on a new culture ready-made. You must wait for the grass to grow, to feed the sheep, to give the wool out of which your new coat will be made. You must pass through many centuries of barbarism. We should not live to see the new culture, nor would our great-great-great-grandchildren. And if we did, not one of us would be happy in it. Well, now that's one man's opinion. And I'm, I'm not here to promote his opinion necessarily. It's just one man's opinion. What, what's interesting to me is that he arrived at that opinion in large measure because of World War I. World War I was for him and for so many other people in the West a blast of that cold, evil air, and he found himself nudging up underneath Virgil just like Dante did and realizing that that is our only shelter, that we take it for granted only in those happy-go-lucky days when we can afford to take it for granted. But when it falls apart, we realize how tenuously civilized we are and what the source of that civilization is. Uh, a little footnote on, on uh, Eliot before we go. He says, uh, if things fall apart, we'll have to go through uh, many centuries of barbarism. Uh, I think it is extremely remote that we could pass through many decades of barbarism with nuclear weapons without destroying it all, uh, much less centuries of barbarism. So that uh, adds another little spin on this prediction of him. The other thing I want to read is um, from something that was written uh, about a week ago. Uh, well, I don't know when it was written. It was published about a week ago in the Chronicle. Uh, it, and it is a brief review of a number of books dealing with Vietnam, and this is one of them. It's a review by John Stanley. And this is a very brief allusion to a book entitled Vietnam, The Other Side of Glory by William Kimball. And here's what the reviewer Stanley says. He calls the book a gut-wrenching collection 
are first-person accounts of soldiers who underwent the most horrible brutalization and maiming in combat and still came out alive. Especially horrifying is the story of the Battle of Dok To, where more than 300 Americans died in 1967. The gory details are not spared. The theme that unifies these ghastly memoirs is that each man found new religious belief from his experience and chose a Christian point of view to live by. The book also chronicles the post-Vietnam traumas they all experienced before finding a new way of life with God as the inspiring force. Not recommended to the squeamish, this is one hell of a blistering book. Notice also, by the way, that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in the, Bible, in the New Testament story, he's tempted by Satan. Satan's strategy is to insinuate himself into our best motive. And the story of the temptation in the wilderness is a story of Satan trying to insinuate himself into, into Jesus' best motive. And in that story, every time Jesus rebuffed the temptation, he did so by quoting Scripture. Now, when he, you know, when he, when, uh, when the crowds are around on the, on the Sermon on the Mount and things are going well and he realizes he's got a, he's got, he has to break through some of these old crusty barriers, then he will be bold and he will say, the Scripture says this and I say this other thing. But when he's alone in the desert with the devil, he quotes scripture verbatim. You see that quality? Is that when we are sobered and left alone with that thing, we realize how desperately our, our, uh, our lives and our, and our souls depend on an affiliation with that deeper tradition. Well, having said that, the next thing is that Virgil steps out, steps out of the way and gives Satan and Dante an unmediated encounter with each other. So having said all that, Virgil knows that in order for this thing to really take hold in Dante, Dante is going to have to have the full horrifying experience of that encounter. And so the, so the text says, line 19, he stepped aside and made me stop and said, look, here is this. He's using the classical, because he's a, he's a classical guy, he's using classical reference to Satan. He stepped out of the way and made me stop and said, Look, there he is. Very intentional what Virgil is doing. This is not a this is not a you know a rush tour. He wants to make sure that Dante gets the full exposure. And Dante says, I did not die and I was not alive. Now, I think of all the things that uh, have to do with the mystery of human redemption or human transformation, the most unappealing thing about it 
is entering into this liminal state, this, this place where we're neither this nor that. Uh, you know, the most, uh, the most commonplace image for any profound transformation is always the caterpillar and the butterfly. Uh, and both the caterpillar and butterfly have qualities that are appealing. The thing that has no qualities that a- appeal is the little thing inside the cocoon which resembles protein soup. Who wants it? See, Neither this nor that. The place of disillusionment. The place of being neither dead nor alive. That liminal place. Nobody wants that. We all want to skim over it. There's, there's this, now there's this term called segue. Is that the way you, you may know about it? There's this term called segue. It's in it's in um, sort of uh, rock music uh, nightclub the nightclub scene. And it is you, you take two songs, and uh, and the, the musicians will create a transition piece. So you go from one melody into the other, and the music never stops. You just go from then it could be quite different songs. But you create this transition, you just go from one to the other. And Carol was saying that there's, a, that, uh, you know, there's a, among the trendy, there's this notion now of the segue, you know, to tr- one, must, one must try to segue situations and go kind of move, have it be just a one continuum, see, like that. And that, of course, is a great hope. It's a pagan hope. <laughs> I was immediately horrified at the idea. But uh, you see, the... It doesn't, it avoids this, avoids that, going into that place where it's neither one nor the other. And it's a break, the liminal stage or state. And, uh, And Dante's in it. We should learn more about this and do it more often. We should practice this. It, it, may not, it may not save me from having to go through a full-fledged version of it, but when I get over to the office every morning about 5.30 or 6, I spend about 30 minutes uh, in a daily midlife crisis. Uh, I don't know whether I'll get, I, you know, I don't know whether I'll get the job done kind of nickel and diming it that way or not, uh, but we ought to learn more about the dark night of the soul or the cloud of unknowing where it's neither one nor the other so that we don't spend our lives fleeing from that place because if we flee that place we'll uh, the transition's not available on page 313 of the Mandelbaum translation we get the picture of Satan And I said Satan is a parody of the great doctrines. Uh, some of the parody is quite obvious, and some needs to be teased out a little bit. Would have been would have been less need in Dante's time for his readers because they were more familiar with some of the some of the uh, the analogs that he was using. 
but we've already seen that, that Satan is a parody of the Holy Spirit, that whole windmill business. And now we find out he has three faces, and that is a parody of the Trinity. And the front face is blood red, and the face on the right is somewhat yellow, somewhat white, a kind of tallow, and the face on the left is black. And he has six wings that are bat-like wings with no feathers. And his tears gush down and mix with a bloody froth uh, and drop from his chins. And within each mouth, he used it like a grinder with gnashing teeth. He tore to bits a sinner so that he brought much pain to three at once. And the three sinners are Judas Iscariot in the central red, in the, in the mouth of the red face, and then on either side, Brutus and Cassius, who were, uh, and Dante's being highly symbolic here, but they were the symbolic betrayers of the personification of the empire, at least, Julius Caesar. A note has to be made here, and I, I, I should have made it before if I didn't, and that is, and I have made it without maybe uh, saying it in so many words, Dante's reverence for the empire, it clearly his reverence here is for the Christian tradition, and Judas is the, is the symbolic betrayer of that, being the betrayer of Jesus. Uh, but the, the continuing reverence that Dante has for the empire uh, doesn't translate or, uh, in our time to a reverence for our particular nation-state. Parallel for our particular nation-state for Dante would be the little fiefdoms and so on that, uh, that divided the, the, the land in Dante's time. If there's anything, and there probably isn't, but if there's anything that corresponds to what the empire meant in Dante's imagination in our time, it would be something like the U.N., just to say, it's it's a the 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 purpose of the empire was to was to uh, reconcile the conflicting aspects of the secular world. So that's why that's when he sees that being violated. He it's not because he's being patriotic. It's it's the opposite of of the kind of what we think of as patriotism. Now I want to go back and uh, tease out a couple of things. So the obvious one is the Trinity. There are three heads. Satan has three heads. There's a kind of three-in-one quality there. And the Trinity is, for Dante, the central mystery, uh, period. The central mystery is the Trinity for Dante. Now, back to the opening verse of uh, Canto 34, the Latin hymn, Vexilla Regis Podeunt inferni, the banners or the standards of the king of hell draw near. That is without the dropping the reference to hell there. Those first words, vexilla regis podeunt, are the first three words of a ancient hymn which was sung at Passion Tide right before the unveiling of the cross. And it is a hymn to the mystery of the cross. I'll read uh, a, a somewhat uh, uh, antique translation into English. 
Forth comes the standard of the king. All hail, thou mystery adored. Hail cross on which the life on which the life himself died and by death our life restored on which our savior's body oh, excuse me on which our savior's holy side rent upon a cruel spear of blood and water poured a stream to wash us from defilement clear and so on and so forth the whole hymn is a hymn of quite literally looking at the crucifix and a hymn to that so how strange that Dante would add a word, the word hell, and have that be his introduction to Satan. The cross is the great symbol of redemption, and Satan is the great symbol of damnation. And so, of course, they are, they are uh, mock images of each other in a way. Uh, John Frasero, one of the great Dante scholars of our time, says, the grotesque quality of the last canto of the Inferno derives precisely from the presence there of reason's traditional stumbling block, the cross. Perhaps I'll start with uh, something that Frasero quotes from. Uh, one of Dante's contemporaries is uh, Ubertino da Casale, who wrote a, ta who wrote a, 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 a spiritual tract uh, called The uh, Tree of Life. And in it he says... Reflect on your beloved Jesus, O soul smitten by the dart of compassion, and see him as the three-colored standard. And the word, this is a Latin text, and the word there is vexillum, which is the singular of this vexilla, which the first word of Canto 34. A three-colored standard. This is Jesus on the cross. For the whiteness of his virgin flesh and the livid blackness of the scourges and redness of the blood that pours forth reveal to him reveal him to be tricolored. Satan has a red face in front, a yellow whitish face on one side, and a black face on the other. In the Gospel of Luke, there is a passage where the God, the apostle the disciples ask to uh, to be given faith, and Jesus says, "If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to that mulberry tree, be uprooted." and be planted in the sea, and it would be so. And uh, the, the early uh, fathers of the church and the medieval writers began to analogize using this mulberry tree. And the thing about the mulberry tree that they noticed is that there are three colors involved. The blossom is a kind of whitish yellow. The, uh, the uh, immature fruit is red, and the mature fruit is black. And they began to see that as the tree of life. And then they began to see the tree of life as the cross. The cross is the tree of life. And then they, they just let their minds go the way uh, this happened. And they began to see that as the image of the uh, crucifixion, as, as uh, Ubertino has it here. And there's a, lot, and there's a lot more. It's a more elaborate digression, which I won't get into, but... Uh, involving sycamore trees and being confused with mulberry trees and all kinds of stuff. But the point is that for Dante's readers, what he's picturing here is a shocking to them, to the learned readers of Dante's time. This is a, this immediately reverberates with a, with a conventional piety about uh, a meditation on the cross. It's, oh my God, 
This is like the cross. You see? And then the fact that the, the tears mingle with the, as he's chewing these, these creatures, you see, the blood from his, which, it, which, which is a parody of the Eucharist, we'll mention that in a minute, but the blood from that chewing mingles with his tears, and it was the mingling of, of, of water and blood when the spear went into the side of Jesus uh, that was so symbolic for the early church. So, here's so parody, the Holy Spirit, the windmill, the cross, the colors and, the, and, and so on, and the mingling of the water and blood, um, the Trinity, the three heads, and finally, the Eucharist, the chewing of these creatures. And Virgil then simply says, it's time for us to leave. We have seen everything. And that's all there is to it. Except we now come to the strangest aspect of this thing and the thing that comes out of Dante's imagination and has left such a mark on uh, on Western literature. Just as he asked, I clasped him around the neck. So Dante was exposed to Satan there for a few minutes, and now Virgil says to him, come back over here and ride piggyback. Now, Dante is going to now go through the great transition. But notice, all he does is hold on to Virgil. Virgil is the one who's doing the work. And if Virgil is the personification of the tradition, there is something important here. That all Dante has to do is hold on. And that's reinforced uh, in, a, in a few minutes. Virgil waits. The great, these great six wings are beating. And Virgil waits for the right moment, and he goes right up to the... You see, Satan here is an enormous monster. He goes right up to the side of Satan, and he grabs the hairy side of Satan and begins, with Dante on his back, begins to climb down feet first as though he's climbing down a ladder, okay, holding on to the hair with his hand. And Dante says, when he had reached the point at which the thigh revolves, just at the swelling of the hip, which also happens to be straight across from the genitals, that's the, that's the center of gravity. My guide, with heavy strain and rugged work, reversed his head to where his legs had been, and grappled on the hair as one who climbs, I thought that we were going back to hell. Strangest thing happens. He gets to this point, and Virgil then turns around and starts struggling down. Now his head's down, and he's, he's, it's as though he's pulling to get down. Hold tight. My master said, he panted like a man exhausted. It is by such stairs that we must take our leave of so much evil. Mm -hmm. 
Then he slipped through the crevice in a rock and placed me on the ledge of it to sit. That done, he climbed toward me with steady steps. I raised my eyes, believing I should see the half of Lucifer that I had left. Instead, I saw him with his legs turned up. Well, what's happened, which we'll, Virgil will tell us, is that Dante has just passed through the center of the earth. And he is now in the southern hemisphere, and gravity's pulling the other way. And at that point, he had to turn around and struggle against gravity. It's a change of the gravitational field. That's part of what happens at this conversion. The whole gravitational field reverses. And the world is turned upside down. This is the way Dante's cosmos works. There at the top is Jerusalem where Jesus died on the cross. And this is hell. And they have made their way down into hell. And right here at the center of the, of the planet is um, Satan. And right there, Satan's midsection, is where things change. And Dante and Virgil have just passed through that. And I'll come back in a few minutes and explain how all this happens because Virgil, uh, Virgil explains it to Dante. Uh, but the major transformation has just taken place and uh, it involved turning the world upside down and a, and a disorientation on Dante's part. And it could not have happened except that Virgil says, said to Dante, hold tight. What happens when Dante said, I was neither dead nor alive, that entering into that neither this nor that transition stage is still in place, even after he passes through there, because there's a... Tercet, beginning line 97, which I want to read to you, but I want to read the uh, Mark Musa translation of it because his translation is, I think, tremendous. Now, Dante has just passed through this great transition, and he is on the other side of it. He's just made his conversion, if you will, the literal conversion. Now, most of us think, well, that means that then it's all peaches and cream. Everything clears up. Everything then falls into place. It's all simple after that. No problems. This is what the, uh, the this is what the, the simple-minded, both the simple-minded who are who are within and without uh, the religious tradition, think about when they think of they think of uh, conversion. Oh, it'll all be cleared up. Well, quite the contrary. It's not all cleared up at all. This is the beginning of the journey for Dante. Mark Musa's translation. It was no palace promenade we came to, but rather like some dungeon nature built. It was paved with broken stone and poorly lit. So, somebody says, well, what's on the other side of a conversion? Instead of start, you know, instead of talking about, you know, the celestial rose, that's a long that's a long way away. What's on the other side of conversion is no palace promenade, but rather some dungeon nature built, paved with broken stone and poorly lit. That's what you come to. That's what you wake up to on Monday morning after the conversion. But the 
wonderful thing is that now you're going upward. Now the movement is upward, appropriately upward. You have passed through that transition and now you begin to move upward. And the reason you're moving upward is because your world has turned upside down. You went down far enough so that when you got to a certain place, you're now moving up. You haven't changed your direction a bit. In a way, you've been moving up all the time. You know, if the world's turned the right way up, you've been moving up all the time, but it didn't seem like it. Well, now comes the worst part, which is that we have to um, try to submit ourselves to something comparable to the shock that Dante felt, the pilgrim Dante, not the poet Dante, the pilgrim Dante felt when he encountered the personification of archetypal or transcendental evil. And as I said, we don't have his metaphysics, most of us don't. Although uh, by mid-21st century, most of us may have his metaphysics again. We may be just going through a period of time when it seems alien to us. But what I want to do is um, bring in a few poems and reflect on where this, how we as moderns might have an encounter that would shake us the way Dante's encounter with Satan did. Now, uh, I, I say I brought in a few poems, how weak that sounds. Yeats said, did not the poet sing it with such airs one believed he had a sword upstairs? Uh, if, if, uh, if we haven't received the shock uh, based, on, um, based on Auschwitz and Hiroshima and My Lai and Jonestown, there's not much chance that a poem is going to introduce us to it. Uh, but still no, I'm going to give a try with a poem because of this, this thing about, which I take from various places in the tradition, the thing about uh, Satan, I will, you don't mind if I use his name that way, do you? The way Satan works, which is that he insinuates himself into our best motives. You know, G.K. Chesterton said Satan's great uh, ploy in the 20th century is to convince us he does not exist and then go about his work. Well, I want to begin by reading um, line 119 and following. He whose hair has served us as a ladder is still fixed, even as he, wa even as he was before. This is Virgil speaking. And he goes on to explain. This was the side on which he fell from heaven. For fear of him, the land that once loomed here made of the sea of veil and rose into our hemisphere, and that land which appears upon this side, perhaps to flee from him, left here this hollow space and hurried upward. Now this takes some explanation, which is why Virgil bothered to do that. And the explanation is this. This is really how the world is, it's like this. 
And uh, up there someplace is heaven. And Lucifer was uh, one of the angels who rebelled against the Godhead. And as, uh, as Milton says in Paradise Lost, him the almighty power hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition. He plunges down, and uh, all the land that was in this hemisphere flees from him and forms the landed hemisphere. So for Dante, the southern hemisphere is all water. And uh, he hits the earth here and plunges all the way to there and gets stuck. And the moment he's stuck, it turns to ice and becomes the pit of hell. And he begins then to, to draw, to try to draw souls into that hellish place. The, this, he, he bore a tunnel through the earth in that plunging. And, and then we've got to do something with all the dirt that was displaced by that tunnel. Well, that's conveniently mounded up and made into the Mount of Purgatory. You see, Theologically, it's quite wonderful. The fall of Satan, which, which, uh, which will shortly result in the fall of human beings, creates the purgatorial mountain, which is the very thing that gives us a way out of damnation. We, I, I'm going to tell you this, and I want you then to forget it, because it's fun to discover it. It's fun to be surprised by it. At the end of the purgatorio, at the very top of the purgatorio, the top of the purgatorial mountain, is the Garden of Eden. That's where our first parents lived, Adam and Eve. In other words, two-thirds of divine comedy is simply the attempt to get back to square one. Uh, the, the, the big transition, one here is this turnaround when you realize the world is upside down, and the other is at the top of the purgatorio when you realize that you've gotten back to where Adam and Eve were at the beginning. And now you can begin the process they could have began had they not fallen. Okay, the reason I had to go into that a little bit because I want to quote a, well, for a number of reasons, I want to quote a, a little section of, of, of two poems by Nemiroff, uh, and the first one is a, really a commentary on Virgil's explanation of how this all happened to Dante. Um, and so it's this, this is uh, the Nemiroff poem. The wind created by his fall became the breath of life in all. By hollowing his dreaded cup, he raised the holy mountain up till at the apex of his crater, a home was made for our first nature. And landing in the frozen lake, he was enslaved for our sake and beat six wings in vain until we made our center in the will. If we can't be as horrified by the satanic as Dante was, at least we can be chilled. Uh, the, the nature of this part of hell requires that it be chilling at least, if not horrifying.
And what's chilling, I think, in Nemirov's rendition of this is that landing in the frozen lake, he was enslaved for our sake and beat six wings in vain until we made our center in the will. The will is where the satanic enters in, where the demonic enters in. Insinuating into our best motives, we are where we choose to exercise our will is where the demonic has a little entry place. And then we get slowly tricked into using the will inappropriately, becoming willful instead of willing. We are supposed to be willing. God wants us to be willing. That's why we have free will. That's what makes us so unique. We have will. We have free will. That's what makes us human. But if we can just be turned slightly into willfulness instead of willingness, then we start down that other path. And it's ever so difficult to distinguish between those two things. And so Satan is the great ice maker by tempting us to use that will for willfulness. Things start to turn colder. A uh, French novelist, Bernanos, has a uh, devil impersonating a jovial little man who who meets a, a, a little country, uh, a little country uh, vicar lost in the woods, and the little jovial uh, devil, who's really Lucifer himself, uh, offers to show him the way. And they have a dialogue, goes back and forth for some time, and finally it dawns on this little vicar who he's talking with, and he pops the question to him, and and this little jovial man says, "I am Lucifer." the light bearer, but the essence of my light is an intolerable coldness. So this, this sense of landing in the frozen lake enslaves there for our sake, beating those wings. By the way, those wings are what frees the world. Beating those wings until we make our center in the will and things turn cold and the ice maker is working. So what I'd like to do using uh, two more brief poems is if we can't uh, be as shocked as Dante was by the metaphysical horror we perhaps can have a, another kind of a horror, and that is the shock of recognition. The shock of seeing, or at least uh, feeling uh, intuitively, how far the demonic has insinuated itself 
into the willing apparatus that we use in our lives. And I have no idea whether or not this is going to make any sense to anybody, and I'm going to have to break all kinds of rules to do it, but I, I'd like to do it. Uh, I'll, I have to explain to you so you understand that it's not totally gratuitous how I came to what I want to read to you. As you know, Dante uh, took uh, Dante rewrote the story when he had the Satan be in a frozen hell. Uh, we'd always thought of hell as being a place of fire. And Dante saw it as a frozen place. And these lines, uh, uh, line 28 and 29 of Canto 34, where Mandelbaum says, um, the emperor of the despondent kingdom towered from the ice. I was reading the Lawrence Binion translation, which is a much older translation, and Binion translate the, translates these lines. The emperor of the kingdom of despair emerged out of the ice. And I immediately thought of this poem. And I thought to myself about this poem. I thought, my goodness, how interesting. So I went and read the poem again. And I read it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that poem is, you know, I slapped my knee. I said, this is unbelievable. I've, I've known that poem for years and years. And I just now realized that poem is a supreme commentary on Canto 34 of Dante's Inferno. And I was so intrigued by it that I did a little research and tried to find out if the poet had ever said anything about that poem. And I found out that he had and that that was not what he meant. <laughs> and um, most people would have given up the project right then. <laughs> but undaunted, <laughs> I decided that the poet missed it. <laughs> he li he really missed it, uh, which is, doesn't take anything away from him because he got a lot of other things, so it's not as though his whole career hangs on his proper interpretation of one of his poems. Uh, but I, I have to admit to you that this is not what he thought it meant. Uh, but I think if, 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 I, if we could get him in this room today, I think we could convince him that this is what it really meant. <laughs> I want to remind you, before reading it, that Dante, except for the stature and the arrogance, the implied arrogance of Dante's satanic figure, Dante does not emphasize uh, what Milton emphasizes, namely this mock heroic quality, the bravado of the Miltonic uh, Satan. But this poem I'm going to read to you begins with a reference to that kind of, uh, to that dimension, and ends, it begins with a Miltonic reference, and ends with a Dante-esque reference. And so this is what I want to read. Keeping in mind that landing in a frozen lake, he was enslaved for our sake and beat six wings in vain until we made our center in the will. Those six wings 
freeze everything, okay? Here's the poem. Call the roller of big cigars, the muscular one, and bid him whip in kitchen cups concupiscent curds. Let the wenches dwaddle in such dress as they are used to wear, and let the boys bring flowers in last month's newspapers. Let B be finale of seam. The only emperor is the emperor of ice cream. Take from the dresser of deal, deal is a pine wood made, cheap furniture is made out of, Take from the dresser of deal, lacking three knobs, that sheet on which she embroidered fantails once, and spread it so as to cover her face. If her horny feet protrude, they come to show how cold she is and dumb. Let the lamp affix its beam. The only emperor is the emperor of ice cream. Now, if I were to, if Wall Stevens were still alive and I were to have the task of convincing him that that is what his poem really means, uh, we could go down and do, and I don't, Maybe I'll pause for a minute to do it, but do some of it, and see how amazingly some of this image fits the Canto 34. On the other side, Dante sees this, Lucifer's feet. In this poem, the horny feet protrude to indicate how cold she is and dumb. The other side of that that arrogant. Place. Bid him whip in, in kitchen cups concupiscent curds. A little innuendo there. Just a sweet, a sweet little confection there. Cupid's involved. Middle of, the middle part of that word. Just whip up a few little things. Last month's newspaper. The three glass knobs. The sheet with embroidered fantails. Well, we don't, I don't want to go into the whole thing. I'm indebted to Wallace Stevens for having written the poem, and, and I'm indebted to Lawrence Binion for having phrased it so that I would go to the Wallace Stevens poem. This is, how, this is what I do here during the week, you want to <laughs> I was so taken by, by it that it stayed with me, and um, other things began to resonate to it. And I began to see the emperor of ice cream as Satan. By the way, as you, I'm sure know, you remember as children, ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. Uh, the nice thing about the word ice cream is that when you just, when you're not reading it on the page, when you hear it, you don't know whether you're saying ice cream or ice cream. And Wallace Stevens surely understood that connection when he wrote the poem. The only emperor is the emperor of ice cream. Well, 
So what we need to do is to now try to feel the shock of recognition of a, of a demonic force that will insinuate itself into the world like that. So I'm going to use uh, a, another Nimrov poem to try to do that. And this is a poem called The Ice House in Summer. And it's a poem about uh, older times, when before refrigeration, just so you get some of the images as they start coming out of this. Um, and it has echoes with Canto 34 and with Wallace Stevens' poem. A door sunk in a hillside with a bolt as thick as a boy's arm. And behind that door, the walls of ice. That'd make a nice entrance into hell, wouldn't it? A door sunk in a hillside with a bolt thick as a boy's arm, and behind that door, the walls of ice. A summer guest, the boy had never seen, a servant told him of it, how the lake froze three foot thick, how farmers came with teams, with axe and saw, to cut great blocks of ice, translucent, marbled, glittering in the sun, load them on sleds and drag them up the hill to be manhandled down the narrow path and set in courses for the summer's keeping, the kitchen uses and luxuriousness of the great houses. And he heard how once a team and driver drowned in the break of spring, the man's cry melting from the ice that summer frightened the sherbet eaters off the terrace. I want to read it again, keeping in mind Satan, the ice maker, and Satan, the insinuator into our best motives, secretly the emperor of ice cream, but one who, landing in the frozen lake, was enslaved for our sake, and beat six wings in vain until we made our center in the wheel. And Dan began to insinuate that ice-making into everything. A door sunk in a hillside with a bolt thick as a boy's arm, and behind that door the walls of ice. A summer guest... The boy had never seen. A servant told him of it, how the lake froze three foot thick. We are like summer guests, aren't we not? We're, we're California suburbanites. Are we not? We are the most pampered people on the planet. We're, we're nice enough. I'm not, I don't want to be too hard on you. But you must understand, we are the most pampered people on this planet. We are summer guests. A summer guest the boy had never seen, a servant told him of it, how the lake froze three foot thick, 
how farmers came with team, with axe and saw to cut great blocks of ice, translucid, marbled, glittering in the sun, load them on sleds and drag them up the hill to be manhandled down the narrow path and set in courses for the summer's keeping. The kitchen uses and luxuriousness of the great houses. And he heard how once a team and driver drowned in the break of spring. The man's cry melting from the ice that summer frightened the sherbet eaters off the terrace. Well, to me, that's an image of conversion. To be among the sherbet eaters, frightened off the terrace by that cry. Because that cry is simultaneous with the break of spring. It's the crucifixion and resurrection, for my money. That is the cry that ought to frighten the sherbet eaters off the terrace. Well, it's not quite the last because there's a little bit more to the poem and we must, because it, it, it presents us with one more beautiful image so we have to look at it. Dante says, There is a place below the limit of that cave, its farthest point from Beelzebub, a place one cannot see. It is discovered by ear. There is a sounding stream that flows along the hollow of a rock eroded by winding waters, and the slope is easy. My guide and I came on that hidden road to make our way back into the bright world, and with no care for any rest we climb, he first, I following, until I saw through a round opening, some of those things of beauty heaven bears. It was from there that we emerged to see once more the stars. Each of the canticas help purgatory and paradise end with the word stele, the stars. What's so beautiful here is that Dante cannot see the path but he knows it runs along the watercourse and he can hear the water flowing. That is living water. It's the only living water in the inferno. The last lines. What else there is in the inferno is a river of sewage, a river of hot pitch, a river of boiling blood, and a lake of ice. But when he comes through that passage, it's living water. And of course it was the living water in the Nemirov poem at the break of spring 
that somebody fell into. And the, and the shock of that frightened the sherbet eaters off the terror. But the beautiful thing is that he is now in the presence of living water and he begins to hear it, to listen to it, that thing we've done so often that obodire means to, obedience means to listen. And he begins to listen to the flow of living water and follow it upstream. This concludes Reflections on Dante's Inferno. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.